some people plod along through life and thinking, man, it'd be nice to make a difference for hunting. Uh, but, you know, I'm just one guy, one girl, one lady. You look at some of the work that's been done by E.O. Wilson. According to Wilson, human beings are hardwired to want to connect to other living systems. I think there's something to be said for that. Now, come on, give me a break. We're using a biased perspective to default out of what's the real problem out there. People saying, well, we've got this newly emerging market of hunters that want to hunt for food. No, it's not a newly emerging market. It's a re-emerging market. That was why we initially hunted. This is Greg Simons with Wildlife Systems, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I've been blessed to harvest 22 of the 29 North American animals with my bow. My personal 24-hour record for death threats is 88. They will start putting two and two together and realize this is how you call bulls in. So when I go hunting now, that's the ethos I take with me. You know, whatever whatever this hunt is going to throw at you, you pull your big girl pants up and you get on with it. Giant bucks are freaking awesome. They're beautiful. But you know what? I would not trade this first buck for anything in the world. So I'm really, I'm a geek. Magicians and dragons and magic swords. (laughs) I shit you not, man. I'm the biggest dork in the gun business. I'm Freddie Hartice, Hollywood Hunter. This is Aaron Snyder. Hey, this is Trevin Stoltzfus with Outback Outdoors. This is Rihanna Carey. Hi, this is John Sloan of the Interviews with the Haunting Masters. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, also getting on to today's episode, super excited to have Greg Simons of Wildlife Systems on the line with me today. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to hop on. You bet, Sam. It's my pleasure to be able to participate in this podcast today. You know, I got to say, anytime uh, Larry Wysoon says... You know what? You need to interview this guy. I, you know, I will take that as some of the the highest highest recommendation a person can receive. So I immediately reached out. Well, I guess uh, Larry was having a, a brain uh, fart that day when he brought up my name, but uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> I'll take that as a big compliment. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe he was getting into the whiskey during the podcast. And I just didn't catch it. <laughs> Could <but>. be. <laughs> Oh, uh, so one thing I'd love uh, love for you to start out with is just a, a general kind of introduction of who you are and how did you get introduced to hunting and the outdoors? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, my degree in college was in wildlife and fishery sciences. I graduated with a bachelor's degree in in uh, nineteen eighty seven from Texas A and M with that degree. So, uh, so that was really um, my initial segue into the wildlife field uh, was through my, my college career, and I had a chance to work on some internships with an individual who was just getting started in the hunting business. So my internships with that individual allowed me to uh, participate in some activities in terms of seeing firsthand the challenges of 
of fledging a new business and what that looks like. And it's allowed me to meet some people, gain some experience, uh, develop some confidence and in, in being able to, uh, to try to basically, uh, you know, mimic uh, what he was doing uh, when I was working with him. So, uh, so when I graduated, I uh, started this company called Wildlife Systems and it's a company that uh, still co-own and operate today, have a partner that as of uh, about three years ago. And, uh, and we, uh, we essentially put together commercial hunting operations on different private lands, principally here in Texas, but we've worked in several other states. We've done some work in several other countries as well. And then I also co-own a company with a guy named Ruben Cantu. Uh, Ruben retired from Tex Parks and Wildlife Department uh, as a uh, regional supervisor uh, about six or seven years ago, and he and I formed an LLC called Wildlife Consultants, and we provide uh, tech guidance for different landowners, bank trust groups, do a little bit of expert witness stuff, and he uh, he, he puts more uh, time investment in that business than I do, and I just try to stay out of his way at times and, and allow him to <laughs> to uh to do do what he does well and uh, and then there's another company that i also own a company called conservation equity partners and uh, and i've got a partner in it called terry anderson that runs that business and it's primarily an environmental mitigation uh, some forestry management over in east texas and then some uh some investment in different uh, conservation lands that uh that we work with and and, and develop and so uh, but most of my time is spent with wildlife systems and uh, messing around with with hunters and, and landowners and and, uh, and trying to uh develop these hunting programs so now you mentioned this all kind of started uh with your with your college degree what what inspired you to pursue that degree? Yeah, you know, I I grew up hunting and fishing, so you know, naturally, I had uh, some interest and, and some passion there. And then my I went to uh, a small high school. There was forty people in my graduating class, so it was a small small school. <laughs> and I had a, a high school principal that I was close with, and he had a forestry degree from. Stephen F. Austin University, and he and I hit it off well. And and during my senior year in college, he uh, one day was like, you know, what do you what are you planning on doing when you get out of high school here in a few months? I was like, well, I, I don't know. He said, well, what would you like to do? I said, well, I'd love to work in the in the wildlife field. And uh, he said, well, have you thought about uh, where you might want to go to college? And I said, well, I'd, I'd written a letter to a guy named Al Brothers, who was kind of a bit of an idol of sorts of mine that uh, he and Al Brothers and another guy named Murphy Bray had co-authored a book in 1975 that was uh, uh, Managing Quality Whitetails or Producing Quality Whitetails uh, was the title of the book. And and uh, and Al was writing a byline for Texas Trophy Hunters Magazine at that, at that time. So anyhow, I wrote, wrote him a letter asking him for some input, some advice, and he, he, he responded to me. So, and he had mentioned that Texas A&M University would be a good choice. That was his album, Water. So anyhow, um, Mr. Fleener, my principal, uh, we loaded up, I think it was the day after graduation, we drove down to College Station and and uh, my SAT sc- scores were not that high. <laughs> and uh, we went into the freshman admittance department and, uh, and he went up to the re- receptionist, Mr. Fleener did, and he said, uh, who's the head of the department here? And she said, well, that would be uh, Mr. Gail Wood. Uh, you know, why do you ask? Is he available? And she said, well, I don't know. Do you have a meeting scheduled with him? And he was like, no, but I'd like to visit with him. So anyhow, she walked back, came back, and a little while later, she said, uh, Mr. Wood would be happy to visit with you. So we walk into uh, to his room and and they're looking at one another and going, okay, how do I know you? I've met you somewhere. And it just so happened they went to church together in Friendswood, which is down by Houston, some years prior. So they caught up on some lost time. And and then uh, Mr. Wood looked at me and said, you know, well, you know what's your purpose of being here today? You know, I was like, well, I want to go to school here, but I didn't score high enough on my SAT score. He's like, well, here's what you need to do. You need to write a letter of appeal. And uh, state why you want to go to school here, what your what your career goals are, et cetera, which I did. And then we went over to Nagel Hall, which was the uh, home of the Wildlife and Fishery Sciences Department on, on campus there. 
same thing. Uh, there was a guy named Dr. Wallace Klusman that was the department head of the wildlife department. And, and uh, Mr. Fleener said, well, who's the department head here? Well, that would be Dr. Klusman. Well, is, is Dr. Klusman here today? Well, yeah. Do, do you have an appointment with him? No, but we'd like to visit with him. So anyhow, ended up hitting it off real well with, with Wallace Klusman, uh, actually continued to to work with Dr. Klusman today on a ranch that he has over in Central Texas and been working with him for 25 years. So that was really kind of my weird um, intro into uh, getting into uh, to college to study, you know, wildlife and fishery sciences. And I guess uh, the rest of it is still history being made. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think I, I think your story really illustrates an important point for people, you know, and whether that's getting into, you know, the outdoors or with anything you want in life, it's one, you have to take a chance. You have to reach out and you also have to be tenacious. And so, you know, whether that's writing letters to people that you admire uh, and you want to hear back from, and I think the hunting industry is a really great place where you can reach out to people and, you know, not everyone's going to see your message or be able to write back, but you can reach out to people, ask them questions, ask for their advice, ask for their recommendations. And I know of very few where if they, if they're able, they will not respond. You know, it's, it's an incredible place. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and really it's, uh, you know, life is so full of opportunities that, uh, a lot of people don't realize are looming. And, uh, and sometimes it's, it's, it's simply a matter of turning over that stone or uh, or knocking on a door and um, and taking that step forward. And unfortunately, there's there's a lot of a lot of people that never end up having an opportunity to pursue their dreams and realize some of the opportunities that 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 may have been available for them or were, were available for them simply because they didn't. There wasn't that spark, uh, that maybe that 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 confidence that they had in themselves at a certain point in time, and then like you know everybody, we tend to get entrenched in our you know life. We 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 find a job, we get uh, we you know, uh, have a family, and and you look back, next thing you know, it's too it's 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 almost a little too late to feel like you can try to rewrite your career. And uh, but yeah, it's uh, you're right. There's just uh, life's full of, of, of opportunities there. And today, when we live in this world of social media, it's very easy to uh, to communicate to people and to seek advice. Uh, and, and that applies to any industry, whether it be the, the, the hunting industry, uh, natural resource field, or or becoming a, a plumber or, or a musician or whatever it may be. So, Well, and, you know, you you just you have to, to some extent, not take no for an answer at least, at least in a certain way, you, you know, you could have looked at that situation and said, well, shoot, my SAT scores aren't good enough. I better, I better look at a different option. You know, I feel like there's, there's two types of people when it comes to situations like that, when you see a roadblock, you're not even necessarily at the roadblock yet, but you see that roadblock off in the distance and you say, well, I better go to a separate destination. I better go somewhere else because this there's clearly a roadblock in the way and I'm I'm there's no way I'm going to be able to get past it. Then there's other people that'll walk right up to that roadblock and they'll they'll look for every possible little hole through it around it over it, a different route to get somewhere, whatever it takes and yeah, they may not always succeed, but that type of person is going to get a lot further in life than, than someone that just changes their goal every time they see a roadblock off in the distance. Yeah, no, that's right. And there's, you know, you used to, I thought, uh, in, in, in some ways I still feel this way today, but used to, I thought, you know, if I had not been so lucky to have, you know, a couple of individuals that uh, were difference makers for me, Early on, I would have never got to where I did, and and that's largely true. At uh, you know the Mister Fleeners, the Gail Woods, the Wallace Klusmans, a guy named Dick Laros from Allentown, Pennsylvania, that was one of my mentors early on when I started this business. I, you know, I used to think, God, how lucky was I to have those people 
in my life at certain junctures, and they were the ones that made a difference for me. But the reality is there's 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 lots of those kind of people out there in different people's lives. And, and I think that, you know, quality individuals, uh, when they recognize that, that, that people are making an effort and that they're maybe reaching out, uh, I think that, that there's, lot, there's thousands and thousands of folks scattered across this landscape that are willing to provide that bridge, that opportunity, that mentorship. That, uh, that, it, that it sometimes takes to be able to have that, that, that door opened up. And it's, it's obviously extremely uh, helpful uh, and comforting when you have someone that you feel like is supporting you, providing you with good information and, and, and wisdom and, uh, and kind of help pushing you along. So, and there's, there's lots of folks and there's people in everybody's life that falls into that description in some way. And so I think it's good to recognize that and to seek those people out. Well, then I think it's also, and, and, you know, again, maybe call me biased, but I think folks in the, you know, in this hunting world are very good at doing this, but it's also good to remember that, you know, remember those people that you've received that mentorship from that, that assistance from whatever, you know, however you want to refer to it, but then, also pass that along and, and, and make an effort to find a way to do that for someone else. You know, that, Mm -hmm. that random person you, you talk to about hunting rather than just be like, Oh yeah, you know, you should go, go off and do this stuff, but you know, actively take that time, take them out. Even if it's, even if it's just a tag along with one of your hunts or whatever that may be, I think it's critical to the things we love to pass that, you know, I hate, I hate using the phrase. It sounds so cheesy, but we've got to pass it on, you know, but it's, it's the truth of it. We do. Yeah. And for years um, I've thought and often said that part of being a true professional, regardless of whatever industry you're in is reinvesting and uh, you know, reinvesting in, in, in people, whether it be young folks like, what you just mentioned a while ago could be young hunters getting them um, involved, um, reinvesting through different um, NGOs, uh, conservation groups, sportsmen's groups, uh, whether that be the Texas Wildlife Association, Rocky Mountain Health Foundation, National Wild Turkey Federation. There's some, you know, as a hunter, as a conservationist, as a person who's passionate about the outdoors, there's there's plenty of great opportunities out there to reinvest and to make a difference. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that some people that are passionate about hunting, uh, they, they kind of plod along through through life and thinking, man, it'd be nice to make a difference, uh, you know, for hunting. Uh, but, you know, I'm just one guy, one girl, one lady. And uh but the reality is through the groups like that, through those NGOs, your voice can be uh, amplified. Your efforts can be leveraged. And, uh, and that's what makes a, a big difference at the end of the day. So, yeah, that's, that's a great point you made. And what are some ways you would recommend then for someone, someone just getting into this? You know, it's, it, there's lots of different types of people, and especially now, with how widespread information and content is a lot more people I think are being exposed to hunting, whether, you know, for good or bad. Um, what, what advice would you give to someone that that's coming in and there, there may be like, I don't, I don't know anyone. I don't know, you know, how do I reach out to these people? Who do I look for? How do I, how do I pick someone? Like there's thousands of people that all, are, are self-proclaimed experts on this topic. You know, what, what insider advice would you have for someone that's looking to, to find someone to reach out to, to find mentors? Yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, having some confidence in your ability to feel like you're not going to be stiff armed or shunned is, is certainly one of the first steps. And I think that that's, that's often a, kind of a false pretense that some people naturally assume is, well, what if, what if he doesn't want to talk to me? What if they hang up the phone on me? What if they don't respond to my, my, uh, my Facebook message to them or, or what have you, but, um, and that can happen. It can certainly happen. 
you know, successful people are often very busy. And, um, but, but uh, again, uh, it, it might be, you know, reaching out to uh, someone that's a friend of your dad's or somebody at church or, or just somebody that, you know, initially is not necessarily an expert, but is someone that you admire for, for different reasons. And, and I, you know, that's one of the things that somebody taught me early on was, uh, as you go through life, pick out people that have certain traits that, that you like, and then try to build those into, you know, the traits that, that you develop over time. So initially, you know, that person you reach out to, it may be somebody that's just, he, he's kind. It's, you know, they're, they're nice, they're a nice person. They respond in a, in a fashion that, uh, that makes you feel good. And, and so, may not be an expert on the subject, but, uh, you know, if, if it's someone that you feel comfortable with, you admire that trait and you feel like they're willing to listen to, to, to your questions and provide some, uh, you know, just to uh, be a sounding board for you, you know, it, it may be something as simple as that initially. And over time, you're going to start, you know, meeting people that are good business people or maybe they're good teachers or maybe they have uh, they're good good speakers, um, and 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 they just have certain talents, certain traits that you that you admire, and uh, and trying to tap on them to uh, to glean information from them. And over time, those other key people are eventually gonna gonna surface. And it it may be after you get to college, and one of your professors that's the you know the ornithologist or or maybe he's in the uh, speech communication department that you're, you know, taking a course in, and you end up um, again leaning on them for personal advice, and, and those people, you know, those people will surface in in, in time, but uh, but I think it's initially it's a matter of just getting into the process of feeling comfortable to talking to other people around you to glean advice from or to um, glean uh, some of the, the talents that they have that you admire. You know, one of the amazing things I've realized is in part of running this podcast, I mean, what I do is centered around reaching out to people and especially people that I've many times never spoken with before, whether that's at an expo approaching someone and, and starting up a conversation with them or reaching out via Instagram or email or whatever that may be. And, you know, uh, I'm fortunate enough to also have my fantastic guests recommend other people to me that I should speak with. And, but even with that, even with all the introductions and all the reaching out I do, I mean, it's maybe one or two out of five people that I end up eventually getting on the podcast. And so, you know, we were talking earlier about you've, how you need to be tenacious and go after what you want. The same thing, you know, if this is something you really want to do and you really want to learn about and, and be mentored through, you're going to have to pursue it. People, you know, every so often you'll get lucky and yeah, somebody will hand you some stuff on a silver platter. But the reality is a lot of people in this industry are being approached by a lot of people and they are going to be a lot more apt to speak with you, to give you their time. If they see that you are hungry and you are passionate and that you really want to live this life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of a, you know, a quote that I heard that uh, says something about, uh, you know, the sign on the door of opportunity says push. And uh, there's plenty of doors of opportunity out there. Sometimes you just have to, to push that door open and, and pursue it and, uh, and keep pursuing it. And, uh, you know, most, uh, things worth having and being proud of in life don't come easy. And if they did, uh, you probably wouldn't appreciate them to the extent that you do when you know that you've put forth, uh, a lot of effort, sometimes made sacrifices, uh, sometimes, uh, helped other people, uh, succeed along the way. You know, those are the, the things in life that I think are most rewarding, and then when you start, uh, you know, when you start getting a taste of some of those results, it, uh, that's that's additional fuel for the engine that uh, that that has you uh, stay committed to to that process. So tell me a little bit about wildlife systems. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what is it? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wildlife systems um, and the, the logo, the, the rudimentary logo of what we still have in place today was, was sketched out in a uh, organic chemistry lab when I was a senior in college, uh, thinking more about hunting than organic chemistry and sketched out uh, this, this logo for this, this business concept that I had in my head. Uh, and, uh, but the, really the, the fundamental concept of the business model when it was started remains pretty much the same today. And that was to, um, to develop hunting programs in different private lands, but to not simply be another hunting outfitter, uh, to, uh, you know, my mother, she, she cleaned houses to help send me to college. And so I didn't want to get out of college and just be another, you know, Bubba outfitter. And I wanted to use my degree and, and wanted to offer some things through an outfitting type of company that, uh, that not just any other outfitter uh, offered. So being able to offer some different uh, wildlife management services along with those those hunting services were were very uh, important to us early on, and those you know that that platform, no doubt, it made a difference for us um, early in the game when we were able to to basically um, suggest and, and eventually illustrate that that we can bring more to the table to you, the landowner, than just hunting revenue. We can bring some things to the table that's also going to help benefit uh, the resources that are found on your private lands that increase the value of those lands and that brings, you know, a sense of uh, comfort and, and uh, some degree of security of, uh, for those landowners knowing that that resource is being managed and it's not being mined. And uh, but that was the uh, that was really largely the the con the basic concept of the business early on and, and remains so today. We've taken some of that business concept component out and and, and plugged that into um, you know these couple of other businesses that I own and uh, and try to channel some of our you know wildlife resource management work that we do under a different business name, but uh, but nonetheless, Wildlife Systems, uh, we're still working with almost a million acres in, in Texas on a bunch of different properties that, uh, that we're not just selling hunts on, but we're also providing some, some management services as well. So when you say management services, tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it, um, you know, and some of these services can be as passive as sketching out a wildlife management plan that provides a, a roadmap for the landowners and their people that we're working with to, to, to doing game surveys, collecting harvest data, uh, working with other third-party contractors if, uh, you know, if that landowner is going to be doing some brush management or creating some uh, additional water infrastructure and working, you know, with some of those other third-party contractors to make sure that that um, that those practices are implemented in a way that that not only benefits you know livestock operations but also uh, benefits the wildlife operations as as well. Uh, those are a few examples uh, of some of the basic. Uh, you know, game management, wildlife management type practices that we're regularly involved with. We do a lot of wildlife survey work for not just ranches that we hunt on, but properties that uh, that we do some consulting work for. Um, through wildlife consultants, that business there, we do, um, you know, quite a few what we call enterprise reports. And, uh, and it's often working with a landowner that uh, sometimes it's a, it's a family owned property. They need a third party to sit down with them, help sometimes mediate discussions, try to get everybody on the same page, uh, try to bring some peace to the discussion. And cause when it, when it comes to family owned properties, dealing with ranching or natural resources, uh, it's hard sometimes for everybody to get on the same page. And the next thing you know, there's there's infighting, there's conflict, um, sometimes results in uh, in partitioning and selling of the ranch, which is very unfortunate. Uh, but uh, so we uh, each year we we're involved with multiple uh, projects where we're doing these enterprise reports and working uh, through kind of a process of, of mediation to uh 
to try to help facilitate these different family members, these different people being able to get together on the same page and have good, uh, good synergy and, uh, and good uh, enthusiasm, uh, which, which makes things a lot more fun at the end of the day for everybody involved. So we do some of that uh, each year as well. It's, it's almost very reminiscent of kind of a smaller scale version for private land, what we do across the entire United States. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting seeing how that parallels. It's like a, a mini private land version of, of our North American model of conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. What's been the response from the the private landowners for that from that so far? You know, where the you know the North American model is is um, relatively speaking is is a is a new concept in terms of the formative aspect of it, and uh, there's a little bit of misinformation or misunderstanding out there from people that that uh, look at the model and are trying to understand what the model is and thinking that it was a template that someone like Gifford Pinchot or Teddy Roosevelt or somebody back there in that era developed and used as a template to help conserve and manage these resources going forward. That's not the truth at all. Really, the model is more a reflection of, of what a few individuals that were later had many other individuals help refine that that model, but uh, Valerius Geis, who's a professor emeritus at the University of Calgary, and Shane Mahoney, who's still a very active international conservationist, uh, it was the two of them that really uh, sat down over time and looked at, okay, what is it about North America that worked in terms of the success of our wildlife resources in this country? What was it that worked? It's not working as well around the globe elsewhere. And so the two of them basically sketched out that model and it's made up of seven different tenants. Uh, in time, you had uh, people like, you know, some of the leaders and, and folks with uh, the Wildlife Society that uh, formed a task force to, to take a look at the model, kind of help uh, reflect uh, some of the the language that is used to uh, talk about the model and and advocate some of the tenants and and why those tenants are very important here in this this country. And uh, and then over time, it just, it it began, and and this has largely come about in the last 25 years and, and really largely in about the last 10 to 15 years. So the North American model of wildlife conservation is it's really a, a relatively new concept in terms of the, the morphic aspect of it and how it's been brought to light. Um, in terms of private lands, you know, Texas, uh, there's roughly 96% of the land in Texas that's, that's privately owned. So, you know, in, in, in one of the foundation, perhaps the foundation tenant of the model has to do with our wildlife resources being a public trust resource. Uh, which basically means they're not privately up and uh, they're owned by the people of the states to be managed by the states, you know, not only for the benefit of today's generation, but for the benefit of tomorrow's generation as well. So when you start talking about that, um, you know, these these resources are, are, are public trust resources, they're publicly owned resources in a state that's privately owned, uh, people's antennas go up real quick. And so trying to then work through that narrative and that, that understanding that the, the model and the idea that, you know, that's the foundation tenant that wildlife is a public trust resource does not supersede private property rights. And that it's that delicate relationship between the idea that Everybody, every citizen in this country has skin in the game when it comes to wildlife, and they do because it's a public trust resource. And that delicate relationship between that and the idea that these private landowners can deny access and they can create um, these free enterprise markets that uh, allow people to pay to come onto those properties to gain access to those resources. It then incentivizes private land stewardship, which is 
really it's it's that as things stand right now that is the key to keeping these wild others with us in a country like the United States because we continue to prove to ourselves we're not very good at managing some of these resources on publicly owned lands but we've done a superlative job on some of these privately owned lands not saying that you know, that there's not examples of, of great stewardship that take place on publicly owned lands, but but without our, our private land component of the sustainable nature of our natural resources in the United States, we will not enjoy the quality of life that you and I have been able to enjoy uh, 50 years down the road. So, you know, and, and that's a that's that's kind of a long version of I think what your question was, but uh, but yeah, the North American model. It's it's great to see that um, certain universities and colleges are are building that into their curriculum. A lot of the NGOs have adopted uh, you know the the tenets of the model as part of their policy uh, positions, and uh, so it's it's starting to gain traction in terms of it being a good education tool when we talk about conservation and when we talk about, uh, you know, what, what role hunters play in that and what role, uh, you know, the public plays in this too. Well, you know, and, and here's the thing is like, I'm not one ever to talk down about public lands. I love hunting public lands. I love the access. I love the opportunity they provide. There's a good chance I would not be hunting nearly as much as I do these days if it wasn't for public land. But, uh, you know, I was just talking with, uh, I, I had Tim Fallon on, you know, and as of I had, the episode came out actually today, as of the day we're recording this, but had Tim Fallon on recently. And we, that's one thing we talked about is the incredible job that private landowners have done managing these species. And I mean, part of the reason they do that and are able to do that is because they're able to make money granting people access to hunt these animals on their land. And, you know, we, we discussed uh, private landowners out of Texas going and repopulating native species back to their native countries, which, you know, that's one of those things that just blows me away every time, you know, every time I think about it, it's, it's an incredible thing. You're, you're right. And, and there's, there's a lot of different, examples that um, that we could use anecdotally to uh, to talk you know about this this topic that we're discussing right now but uh, and, and again I don't want it to sound like I'm being insensitive about um, what goes on on public lands because uh, we there are many many examples of um, of great resource management uh, outcomes that we've had on on public lands but when we look at uh, the wildfires out west and then we conveniently default to go global warming as the culprit of that. Now, come on, give me a break. We're, we're, we're taking the, um, we're, we're using a biased perspective to, to default out of what's the real problem out there. And it's mismanagement of our forested, you know, resources out there. And, and, uh, and some of that's taken place on private lands, but on, a lot of the public lands out west where we have not had the um, the mechanisms in place that allow us to manage those timber resources uh, more prudently that avoid these excessive fuel loads that we now have. And when we get into these wildfires, you know, the, um, the scale, the combustibility, the magnitude, it's just, it's, 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 it's multiplied uh, because of our, inability to manage those forest resources more uh, effectively than what we've done in the, in the past. And, uh, and like Tim pointed out, there are some, there's various exotics that we have here in, in Texas, whether it be, you know, scimitar horned oryx or addicts or dama gazelle or, or red, red lechwe, where, you know, some of the, some of the, um, you know, again, the incentives that have been provided to these, private landowners in Texas to have those species available on their properties and the monies that are generated by having those animals available on, the, on those properties. And it's typically hunting monies that are the 
revenue sources that, um, you know, that incentivize those landowners. And then you have certain programs such as, you know, with John Jackson's conservation uh, force, what he calls conservation force, his organization, uh, he has a, uh, a fund that's part of what he calls his ranching for restoration fund where people pay into that fund. And then, uh, you know, those funds are used to, to, to reinvest in those areas back in those homeland areas where, you know, those animals are from, such as Senegal with the scimitar horned oryx or some of the other, you know, countries where these these animals are, are native to. So, yeah, that, and those those are just a couple of anecdotal examples of uh, of what we're talking about here. So, I mean, I, in, I think one thing we can definitely take away from all of this discussion is that for wildlife to thrive, especially in this day and age where, you know, so much of their habitat has been destroyed or turned into housing or whatever it happens to be. And, and a lot of these animals, you know, people like to like to admire them, but more than anything, consider them a nuisance on the landscape, you know, hunting is necessary for these animals to thrive the for their management for their their conservation for us for the funds generated through that whether on on private or private land or through Pittman Robertson or whatever that may be hunting is about as critical as it comes yeah exactly and it's you know I'm I occasionally hear the saying and it's a good saying uh, but it uh, but there's a rest of the of the line that sometimes left off, but we, we often, you know, say if it, if it pays, it stays. And, and, and indeed there's, uh, we just live in a world where the financial economies are often necessary to be able to protect things and manage them, conserve them for sustainability. But if it was as easy as if it pays, it stays, then market hunting would still be in place because it paid back during the 1800. So there has to be some balance there. Uh, the financial economies are important, but uh, but having a uh, an appropriate, um, somewhat user-friendly regulatory environment to help you know manage and regulate how that resource is going to be allocated and um, and how it's going to be uh, utilized is is part of that that recipe. So. If it pays, it stays, has some merit, but there's a there's a rest of that story, and and, and a lot of that has to do with appropriate regulatory um, frameworks that ensure uh, that uh, that those uh, those resources are are taken care of properly, and and hopefully have some healthy financial economies that are part of that whole process, and that's when you have. Uh, that's when you have a very functional conservation recipe then is, is financial economies that are helping to pay for it. Um, you know, good science that gives us a compass on uh, what direction to, uh, to rely on, on how to manage those, those resources. And then having a good regulatory environment that carries a stick with it to make sure that if you get out of hand, um, you know, you, you may have to pay. In a, in a different way, oh, yeah. and uh, so it's it's a combination of those things that keep these wild others with us, and and that hopefully will um, you know for the next uh, next hundred years or more. And so, with this importance, you know, we've been seeing. I feel like we've been seeing a decline in uh, in the number of hunters across the United States in the last several years, and how do you see this as affecting uh, this balance that we're trying to develop of, you know, financial, uh, financial rewards versus all of this? Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's concerning because it's, um, it's, it's real easy for us to have the, 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 the needed information that tells us that up until this point uh, for, almost 120 years, 
It's monies that have come from hunters that pay for terrestrial wildlife conservation in this country. It, uh, there are some fractional, smaller amounts that come from other sources, but far and away, and it's a round number, but 90% of uh, the monies that we've historically relied on to manage terrestrial wildlife in this country have been generated from uh, from hunting-related funds. You know, if you look at if you look at the operating bu budgets of all these different state DNRs, uh, about 88% of their operating budgets as a whole come from hunting and fishing-related uh, sources. You know, hunting license fees are are a big one. You know, the PR funds that you just mentioned, Pittman-Robertson funds, the excise tax that people pay on sporting arms and ammunition. That's a big one. Um, you take you, 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 you create a society where all of a sudden, uh, for the first time in a hundred plus years, we have this this descending percentage of our population that's buying license and a descending number of hunting licenses that are being sold. It's very concerning. And um, fortunately, one of the silver linings of COVID-19, whether it's cause and effect or otherwise, one of the silver linings of COVID-19, almost without exception this year, hunting and fishing license sales have been up in almost every state across the country. And uh, now, is, is that simply because our society had a, had a lid placed on it for several months and uh, this is how they're responding. Um, you know, what 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 is that cause? What what's the precipitous of that cause and effect? Uh, you look at some of the work that's been done by E.O. Wilson on biophilia. Now, according to Wilson, um, human beings are hardwired to want to connect to other living systems. Um, I think there's something to be said for that. And then when you deny our American society the opportunity to to freely, conveniently, at their will, connect to those other systems, those other environments, the appetite, I think, grows even greater. And so when that lid is, is either taken off or when people just decide, I don't care if, um, if, 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 if someone is trying to put a lid on me, I'm gonna go camping, I'm gonna go hunting, I'm gonna go fishing. I think we're seeing a lot of that. So I think this biophilic um, nature that uh, that we have is 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 being uh, it's being exposed right now in a, in a in a much more profound way. You look at uh, all the different outdoor industry product lines, retail sales, whether it's camping equipment, hiking, boating, hunting, fishing, all these different uh, outdoor related lines, you know, are seeing record sales right now. And, uh, you know, someone could say, well, you know, maybe it's because for several months people weren't spending much money. They got more money in their bank account now or in their pocket. So they're, they've got more to spend right now. And there's probably some truth to that. But I do think that um, we have this really neat uh, silver lining that COVID-19 has provided us with. And it's, it's uh, the reality of people now being more consciously aware that those are things that are important to me. You know, I will not be denied my ability to participate, you know, in these, in these activities and in these environments that are special to me. And uh, hopefully we won't see a spike in a trough, you know, because um, as a friend of mine says, the edge of intensity can cut both ways and it often does. And, uh, but hopefully the spike that we're seeing will will remain more ingrained in our lifestyle moving forward. And we'll see the benefits of, of all this, you know, uh, well into the future. And I think, I think we're also seeing a lot of people coming to the realization of how dependent they are on these systems that we have not, not necessarily, you know, kind of these, biophilic systems like you mentioned but but the systems we have in place in society whether that's 
grocery stores or, you know, Costco for toilet paper or whatever this happens to be. And they're realizing that, uh, you know, these things disappear. We lose access to them. How am I going to survive? And, you know, that's then striking that chord that makes them want to return to that kind of inherent human nature. And, you know, why probably also we're seeing, you know, I think I think there was already a bit of an impetus to kind of return to that 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 whole kind of locavore movement, but then I think this whole COVID situation really ramped that up with people suddenly realizing that they have no ability to survive outside of having things provided to them. Yeah, you know, in the history of the human species. Um and this has been talked about it at, at times in other settings, but, but the, in our history, you know, there's a tendency for our society to repeat itself in, in various ways. And, and I think with the locavore movement that you just mentioned, we're seeing some of that. And um, 15, 20 years ago, there was perhaps a bit of this mentality with some of our hunting community where people got so focused on horns and antlers and the size of the fish they caught, whatever it may be, that uh, the idea of just going out to hunt for food, uh, that sound, that seemed outdated. And uh, that's, that's not where you get your food. You get your food in the grocery store. You know, it's more economically achieved there. It's more readily available. It's convenient, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, but indeed uh, in recent years, um, you know, I hear some people saying, well, we've got this newly emerging market of hunters that want to hunt for food. No, it's not a newly emerging market. It's a re-emerging market. You know, that was why we initially <laughs> hunted was for food. So it's really not a new market per se. I think it's, I think we're at that point in society where again, we're starting to come full circle circle we're repeating history for whatever reason whatever the you know the precipitous is but uh, and I, I do think that our hunting community is now starting to mature in a different way to where we don't look at these people that are wanting to hunt for food as hippies we look at them as our friends you know our people and um and we're, we're developing some pretty neat ways of embracing that programs that help uh, cultivate, you know, that uh, that participation that help make it even more fun where you're having these different uh, field to fork or pasture to plate kind of um, programs and parties and events and education pieces and books being written and and Steve Ranilla talking about it and his products. And, and so we're, we're embracing this whole idea of, um, of wildlife as a, as a bona fide food source. And by the way, it, it creates a, an enjoyable aspect of our lifestyle to be able to participate in collecting, you know, those meats and, uh, and, and appreciating the life the lives of those game animals that we hunt, uh, appreciating the ecology and the conservation practices that are required to sustain those resources. It's a, it's just a, it's a whole process that I think is now beginning to become more clear in people's minds what all that means. And now how do we, how do we continue to embrace that in a way that addresses some of these descending hunting license sales that we've been seeing in recent years by tapping into some interests that um, hopefully in time will, will favor increased hunting license sales. But uh, I think it's a very important part of, of the future success of, of hunting in this country. Well, you, you know, we were just, again, talking about Tim Fallon and, and one of the things I discussed with him was his, that, that new hunter training program he's in the process of developing. And I think what's really cool about that is it's not just the whole like, okay, we take you out and we get you your first animal. Boom. Ha ha. You're a hunter now. No, that's getting the animal. You're only halfway through the whole process right there. 
you know, they train you, they take you out, they get you the animal, but then they teach you how to quarter it, how to take it out of the field, how to cook a meal with it, which, you know, and my listeners are probably so sick of hearing me talk about this, but the most satisfying part in the world to me is that moment when you're sitting down with your family and you've made a meal from an animal you've harvested and almost to the extent of people don't even realize that it's a wild game animal. It's not this mystical thing. It's just a simple meal, Mm. but everyone's just living life and going on and enjoying each other's company like any other day. But you know that, that you provided that you, uh, you were a part of that. And it's, there's nothing in this world that's more satisfying to me than that, that moment when the family's just sitting around having, having a meal from something that you harvested. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. The, the ability to spiritually connect uh, to your food is um, I suspect we went through a, a time along that continuum in the history of, of this country where we lost some of that spiritual connection. It wasn't as prevalent, you know, per capita within our society as is what it probably once was. And uh, but uh, but when 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 you feel like there is a spiritual connection to the food that you know that is that you're that you're not just enjoying but that is supporting you know the health of your body, it it, it I think it affects our kind of our psychological way of looking at things a bit differently. And uh, I think we become less wasteful with foods. I think that, um, you know, we, we reassess how we want to collect those foods. Uh, we reassess the, uh, the healthy nature of some of the foods that we put in our bodies and what that means to our bodies. But, uh, but yeah, it's, and that's, I, I think, as I understand, one of the byproducts of, of the locavore movement is you have folks that that intellectually in an emotional and, and often spiritual way are connecting they're, they're creating a bridge between hunting and their food for their body in a way that that a lot of hunters historically just have not been able to to do or have you know taken for granted certain things that um, kept them from being able to make that connection in, in that kind of meaningful way. So, so yeah, it's i uh, I've got to where I enjoy game meats a lot more than I, than I used to. And uh, being in the hunting business, I've always had game meats available to me. And for years and years and years, our family didn't need a lot of game meats. You know, I was so busy during certain times of the year. Um, I just really didn't feel like quote messing with game meats you know, for our own house household, I found it just more convenient for us to buy our meat, you know, from the local grocer. But um, over the last, particularly the last five to 10 years, I've found the game meats being a really important part of my hunting activity and a really enjoyable part byproduct of, of what I personally get out of, out of hunting. And, uh, and, and 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 a lot of times it's the animals I've taken, but uh, but but sometimes I, I'm just I'm I'm so thankful when somebody leaves part of their pronghorn or their elk that I can take home. Mm-hmm. Where used to is like ah, that's just that's added work. I don't you know thanks for the offer, but let's give it to somebody else. I don't want to mess with it. I I, I want to mess with it now. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I, and again, I've probably, I said this a hundred million times on the, on this podcast, but I really think this, this kind of return to the locavore movement and people having that connection with their food is something that's going to solve so many problems with food, whether that's, you know, whether that's obesity uh, whether that's health issues stemming from the quality of food, you know, whatever that may be. I think so many of these issues are dealt with when you, when you are connected again with your food, when you one, know what you're eating, know the quality of it. And two, uh, you know, I've said it before, how many times have you, you know, you've gone to the store, you've bought, 
you know, some ground, you're having, you're having a barbecue, you're having, you buy some ground beef to make some burgers out of, or whatever it is. You have an extra thing that you leave in the fridge and you forget about it. It browns and you're like, well, crap, I got to throw it out. It's happened to me a million times over the past, you know, however many years I've been shopping at a grocery store. Now ask me how many times I've let a single piece of wild game meat in my fridge go to waste. I think maybe if I've accidentally dropped a little bit of grind or something on the ground, that's about the majority that's ever gone to waste when it comes to wild game in my household. And Uh, it's because I know the work that went into gathering that I have respect, an extra added respect for that animal that gave its life to feed me because I was part of that process. That's another reason why I like processing the game myself. I don't always have time. Uh, or all the all the tools to do everything, but it's it's super important, I think, and I think it would solve countless problems people have with food and eating and health if if yeah. it was a universal return. Yeah, and I think you know the locavore movement, um, you know, it speaks to people's health uh, in more than one way. I think that there's a tendency for us right now to. Talk about the game meat and how locavores are wanting to be part of the process of, you know, collecting these locally grown organic foods. Um, but then we talked about some of the work that E.O. Wilson had done earlier in, in some of his uh, philosophies on biophilia. But uh, Richard Luke, who's, uh, you know, uh, done a lot of work, spent a lot of time writing about what he refers to as nature deficit disorder. And so, when we talk about this locavore movement um, in the healthy game meats that are provided that, you know, enrich our body, uh, and then you start looking at some of Richard Liu's work and how, you know, some of the work that's been done, uh, research that's been done out there shows that people that grow up with meaningful relationships with outdoor settings tend to be more healthy. And, and it's not just you know, your basic physical health, but your emotional health too, uh, whether that be anxiety, depression, or whether it be obesity or high blood pressure. Uh, I just think that there's there's something to be said for taking a look at some of the some of the writings that Richard Louvre has done in recent years and and, uh, and and tying that into this locavore movement and 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 how not only this 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 reemerging side that we're seeing in hunting provides us with healthy food and enriches our lifestyle, but it also puts us in an environment in the outdoors that uh, affects our health in other ways too. And and that's where some of this Richard Louvre work I think is I, th- I think we need to do a better job of trying to pull some of this together and learn what it really means and uh, and then use that as a use that knowledge as a tool for moving forward but yeah it's uh, you know some pretty exciting times in that regard right now absolutely so you know as we're as we're kind of winding down here um, one one thing I always like to finish up with is, and we we I feel like we we kind of covered some of this uh, at the very beginning of the podcast, but say you run into someone or wherever it may be, and you know they know you're a hunter or you're discussing it with them, and they say, you know, hey, I really like what you do, or or maybe they are wanting to kind of return to that uh, that locavore lifestyle, uh, and but they're like, you know, I I just don't have any background in any of this. I don't. I don't know anyone that does it. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot to it. There's way too much for me to figure out. It's really intimidating. I don't know if this is something I can personally do. What, uh, what words of wisdom would you give that person? Yeah. You know, and that's one of our big barriers um, for entry is, uh, you know, we a growing per- percentage of our society or urbanites, you know, they, they grew up in the, confines of the concrete jungle and uh, you, you mentioned the word intimidating you know earlier in our podcast and, and some people get intimidated pretty easy when they start thinking about well how do how do I go about you know getting involved as a, a, a putting my my toe in the water to become a hunter or to experience hunting and it's a 
that's that's it's a huge barrier for entry. I think that we've developed some programs that help address that. We need to scale them out. You know, some of the some of the youth hunting programs, the Texas Youth Hunting Program is one of the blue ribbon models for being able to get kids um, outdoors involved in hunting. Uh, we need to scale that out. You know, one of the things that that I, I think we sometimes overlook when we start talking about hunting and getting people involved with hunting is fishing. You know, fishing's hunting. It's just an aquatic form of hunting. Mm-hmm. It's really... I'm not going to say it's it's no different, but it's hunting. And so when you have uh, opportunities for access that are more easily gained, sometimes more um, affordable to access those things in public reservoirs, rivers, uh, different uh, areas that provide fishing, that in itself is a segue. And uh and then when 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 people begin to experience that and begin to experience taking the the life of a of a uh, of an animal, whether it's aquatic or terrestrial, um, you know that's part of the process. And then they begin to see that there's, you know, one of the one of the the end of the means is is a food source. And and when you start, you know, I think there's several fingers that come off that. One is the appreciation for life and the appreciation for death and what what all that means. But um, but two, using that as maybe a suggestion for how people can get involved with hunting. Well, have you ever fished before? No, I really hadn't done much fishing. Why don't, why don't you try that first? It's uh, economically, it's not quite as expensive. Uh, there's a local reservoir down here where you can go catch some sunfish and and try that, you know, and, and let's talk again in, you know, in a few months. And uh, I think that we need to be a little bit more, I won't say creative, uh, open-minded um, on how we, uh, how we provide those portals and how we uh, try to plate that up for certain people to, to get into that process of moving forward. And then eventually, you know, if they don't have a gun, either borrowing a gun or buying a gun, learning how to shoot it properly at the gun range, that's part of the process. And then um, then finding a way to, to take to the field with it to, to hunt, you know, small game or birds and not worry about having to go hunt big game immediately. I think we sometimes place too much emphasis on big game as the the first taste of hunting when, you know, we in recent years, we, we've tended to overlook you know, rabbits and squirrels and doves and, you know, small game. But uh, there's, we, we can play this game smarter and, and, and we can play it harder once we learn how to play it smarter because one will tend to feed the other. Well, Greg, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and speak with me today. Um, if people wanted to find uh, you or Wildlife Systems online, where can they uh, hunt you down? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they can find my picture at the post office. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> now just go to our website, uh, wildlifesystems.com is our easiest way to find out who we are and what we do, wildlifesystems.com. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time today. Really enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely, Sam. I appreciate it. My, all my pleasure. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com slash 174 to get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from The Wild Initiative family, and more. 